you it's that individual individualization that you're mentioning yep. that that coaches do that's like oh yeah I, i'm gonna learn what makes you tick i'm gonna learn mm-hmm. what you're afraid of what you right. like to do your favorite ice cream flavor right. i mean silly fun stuff too yeah like when someone knows even fun stuff about me that doesn't even really matter so to speak i feel known and loved 100 percent. you know Welcome to 242. This is a podcast of the Buffalo Vineyard Church where we talk about things that matter to our lives as followers of King Jesus. I'm talking with my friend Patrick Cruz. We talk about creativity, both in the artistic dimension and also in the entrepreneurial dimension, the positives and negatives of that. We talk about teaching and coaching, how to make connections with people, and really what it means to love each other well in ways that um, build each other up. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. So you're a creative person. Yes. What, um, what has that been like for you? Um, yeah, I think you had some of us at the church take the, the big five personality test. And, mm-hmm. and one of the predictors is openness. Right. Which is like a measure of creativity. And you I, were, you were like, I was a hundred percent. Exactly. So it's like <laughs> most of the time you don't get a hundred percent on this test. Um, and maybe part of that is taking the test. I know who I am. So yeah. all those questions, I was like, yeah, I love creativity. Yeah. Um, I just sincerely, I love like having that mindset of being open to new experiences, being spontaneous and all those things that, uh, are required for that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, creativity has always been something that's been big for me. And, um, it's funny, uh, but it's like a double edged sword, right? It's something that you enjoy. That's fun. But, um, I remember I was traveling one time I was in the Navy and we pulled into port and me and my friend, my roommate on the ship, he's like a 30 years, my senior, but we were both officers and, we pulled into port and took the train up to Wales and we ended up in this bookstore and he's like, just from previous conversations, he knows about me and creativity and how I like, you know, poetry and writers and stuff. And he brings me this book and it's like, um, he's like, Hey, I think you'd like this book. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the title and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know whether to be like offended <laughs> or like, cause the, the title is touched by fire. And then the subtitle is uh, Manic Depressive Illness and the Artistic Temperament. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was like this. It was like a... Did you read it? it, Yeah, yeah, I read it. So this like psychologist who... Should you have been offended or should you... No, no, no. It's really good. I was fascinated. I was actually... He was was right. He's a smart guy. All right. He's like a nuclear engineer or something on Hmm. uh, on the aircraft carrier. But so... Well, not anymore. But he... Uh, in the book, it kind of talks about how um, this psychologist, who also is a lover of literature and art, like as a secondary thing, um, wanted to like research and see about connections between those two things. Like people who are artistic seem to, seem to struggle with depression, yeah. man, depressive illness. So there's like a chart in the back of the book that lists like every famous artist and writer and painter that you've ever heard of. And 
next to them are symbols that correspond with like attempted suicide, mm. like committed suicide, struggled with manic depressive illness or this mental illness based. Yeah. And it's all based on their journal entries or things that we know historically about their life that have been authenticated. And so all these names are like littered with symbols yeah. and it almost like, I think gave me a feeling of relief as someone mm. who's artistic because I'm like, Hey, if these great artists struggled with like being depressed and feeling like they have trouble finding their worth in the world. Because if you do have that like uh, strength or superpower, so to speak, to be artistic, and then you're never really authenticated or, I mean, affirmed for it yeah. by the world around you, you feel like uh, insecure yeah. and you feel less than. Whereas, you know, you were a wrestler. Right. And when you were winning matches, when right. you're getting better, when you see your progress yeah. and you get to hit wickets, like you're like, okay, last year I was JV. Now I'm on varsity. Right. Now you go I out, went you to get the your state hand raised and everybody cheers. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a visible like milestone mm -hmm. for you to pass. But a lot of times for artistic people, it's not measurable. It's like, oh, yeah, this person likes it. This person loves it. My grandma loves it. My dad said <laughs> it sucks. So it's like you just feel very confused because you're huh. always getting mixed messages around the area. That's your strength. Yeah. And so you can kind of like, um, yeah, struggle with that. And so think I had to work through that throughout my childhood and college and um and strangely enough I went into the military <laughs> as yeah. a creative person and I think part of that was I was longing to be in a structured world where Why? I, where I could I think part of the thinking was I would waste my college years otherwise mm. like I wouldn't do a lot with it because I'm so open yeah. to new open You'd spend your college years cutting your ears off. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not organized. So yeah. I was like, I need somebody to organize my life for me yeah. and this place will do that for me. And then at the end I can feel affirmed that mm. I actually did something valuable. And then so, I don't have to feel like, Oh yeah, you're a poet artist. Like, mm. and people kind of write you off. You know right. what I mean? So I think part of it was like a longing for affirmation for my family. Who's a military family. Right. And also just for myself, but then also I think some good reasons like, oh, I actually will grow as a person if I do this. So, yeah. So you've talked already a lot about, um, what it's like to be creative more in the, in the, I almost like artistic domain. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, so what I'm not very artistic. I, it's not like I don't have maybe some ability to draw or to envision things that way, but that's not really where I lean in terms of my temperament. Mm -hmm. um, but you and I both are creative also in the sense of um, like entrepreneurial, like in oh, that yeah. direction too. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, which that is a place where I am very creative. Um, but you haven't, and I would say you are too, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you haven't necessarily talked about that as much. What's that like for you to be um, both not just creative in the artistic sense, but also creative in the envisioning new possibilities sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that comes, uh, I think being, I just started as a teacher yeah. too. Um, um, and in a sense, like all the lesson planning 
and okay. doing classes is an entrepreneurial endeavor. Like you're building a curriculum. Yeah. And I mean, I think some teachers do that less creatively than others and more systematically. Yeah. All um, of the ones that taught me. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, which is like I tended to not like them. You know, it's like everyone watches Dead Poet Society and they're like, why couldn't I have a teacher like that? And the other teachers are like, that's not real. It's a it's a pipe dream. Except for you. And then you're depressed. You're you're Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I I, I think that you You are. I just think that you're not Robin Williams. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to like, you know, like. But you, think but of that myself is the something way, that I'm not. But that's but the I way want, you're engaging. But that's like an ideal that yeah. I I think that you know ideals are meant to be believed in and hoped in mm-hmm. and strive are striven strived for. You're the English teacher. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know. I know. <laughs> so I'm nervous <laughs> talking <laughs> on podcasts. So um, you know they're meant to be like lifted up, and you know good ideals are meant to be like seen and worshipped for a sense in the sense that you are meant to try to like mold yourself after them and work for them you know um and so i think that in in lesson planning and class and um which i think applies outside the realm of teaching i think anybody who is a is a parent is a teacher in the sense that you're trying to create an environment for your kids to grow and learn yeah which is what teachers do same thing except there's just 50 of them (laughs) for the teacher. You know what I mean? Um, And so um, I think creativity is an openness is something that everybody experiences and to different extents, you know? So, um, but yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if you had other or what you were asking more specifically about creativity and, So you talked, you talked a little bit about, I guess you briefly talked about what it's like, some of the positives of being creative. And then you spent some time talking about, I don't know if you would call them the negatives, but just the dark side of being a creative or an artistic person and how, when you realize that that's actually a really common experience that gave you maybe permission to be creative or to be okay with your creativity. Um, but I wonder if you've had some similar, you know, similar or different experiences around being um, entrepreneurial or visionary, um, which is kind of, I don't know what the right word to use is, but you've got that kind of like artistic creativity and then you've got that more like pioneering creativity, which again, you, you and I both have had conversations about and both personally have had experiences with starting things, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's a small group or a book club or, you know, like evangelism group or, you know, I just, I've been around you and watched you, both dream about things that you want to start and actually start some things. Um, and then obviously I've, I've done similar things. So that's a place where we both have that more like entrepreneurial type of creativity and we share that. I don't have as much of that artistic side of things mm-hmm. that you have. So, um, so again, you'd shared some of the positives and negatives of being a creative artistic person. I'm wondering how you would point at some of the positives and negatives of being that visionary or pioneering kind of a person. Yeah, I think that you need, you almost need like a, you need somebody to, um, or at least like strong community around you Mm. to like pull that forward. And I mean, I think a way that the first time I really realized this was like when I was struggling with depression and anxiety pretty bad when I was in the Navy, 
um, you know, can like, like I know tangibly how that feels. Like it's, it's just, uh, yeah. Anybody who's felt, have you, have you struggled with depression at all or anything like that? Or I mean, I would say, I would say like there was that one time once where I was like (laughs) kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's not like the answer is no, I've never experienced it, but also. Yeah. And you're a type seven on Enneagram for anybody who knows about that. And they're known for not being depressed. No, I'm not really. And fours that I am are known for being depressed. So. Right. It's (laughs) It's funny. So you and I, so sevens and fours on the Enneagram are, are the types that for me seem in some ways, there's a lot of overlap, but Mm -hmm. almost because they're, like polar opposites. Yeah. Like that's kind of how they feel to me. Like they're, they're so opposite from each other that they end up having some interesting similarities too. Yeah. 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 I was, I always had this thought of this theory and I I mean, I haven't really talked about this with a lot of people um, or even necessarily read it anywhere, but I think the perfect place to air it is on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, (laughs) and it's not, I mean, it may be wrong. I don't know, but I just thought as like, as a four or somebody creative who, um, you know, anybody who's idealistic, which who means like you tend to like go into situations and think like, Oh man, things should be like this. Yeah. Like, and you're captured by that vision. And whenever you hear a sermon or a speech or a politician or anybody who talks like that, you tend to be like attracted to, yeah. that and to other people it sounds fluffy and unrealistic and how do we pay for it and all this stuff but you're like attracted to that and yeah i just think that i noticed that a lot of my depression stemmed from like mm. the ideal not coming true in my life yeah and so you're like what do i do like what do I, i'm constantly falling short of the ideal yeah And that's the thing that I, and it's not that other people don't experience the ideal and, you know, um, and I think all different types can get depressed, Yep. but I think often it can revolve around. I had this way I thought things should go and it didn't happen. And maybe the opposite happened. Yep. I was supposed to get loved by my family and they didn't love me, Mm. you know? Um, and maybe they even hurt me and, direct ways and so then you're like scarred and depressed because of that and um are you are you okay with me talking about sad stuff no okay i I, like as a seven no no it's like i just it just washes over me and i think i know you're like no yeah yeah, you're like no it doesn't bother jumping around (laughs) in your head (laughs) no no not at all i I don't it doesn't bother me to have conversations about i mean i'm not i'm not bothered by having conversations about those things. Um, I think I tend to be as a, as a seven on the Enneagram that tends to manifest itself with me seeing opportunity and focusing in on positives, but that doesn't mean that I'm bothered by thinking about negatives or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I know I, and I, I am mean, fascinated by personality. I know. And I wish I could be more like, yeah. you know, so, but at the same time, part of me is like, no, oh. I like, I think that there's a, there's a shadow side to every personality type, including yeah. mine. Yeah. Yeah. What is yours? Uh, so if you're talking specifically about that, the seven, so through the yeah. Enneagram lens, like 
I identify as a seven. And I would say, there, I mean, there's more than one. One of the biggest shadows is, um, you know, like I can be incredibly optimistic, which doesn't sound like a shadow, but what that means is you don't actually have a realistic vision of, of the world. Um, you know, it, it can really frustrate my wife when we are making plans together and it might be like an area of expertise that I have, but just because I have, you know, so like maybe it's construction related, I will tell her how long something will take. And she has learned by now that it's going to take like you know, oh, yeah. four or five times longer than yep. my estimate, you know? <laughs> so that I would like, that's just mm-hmm. a silly example, but yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, a very real shadow side to being an optimist is that I can underestimate mm-hmm. problems. I can not see problems that are present in myself or in people or in relationships. Like I can just ignore them. Yeah. Um, I think probably coupled with that, this, this, now that I think about it, this is probably the biggest shadow is um, I have a natural inclination to avoid hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means if the truth is hard, avoid it. If the confrontation is, you know, going to happen with somebody, avoid them. If like, that's, that's my natural bent. And I certainly have had to, as I've tried to mature over the years, have had to learn to not allow that natural inclination to rule my life, but it's still present in me very much. So, yeah. So So that's the shadow. So that would make sense why you don't get depressed very often right? because you avoid anything that right. could ever cause that. Right. Just, don't, just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's yeah. that? Have you seen Maybe that new I heart, would, that new heart skit? Uh, no. Oh my gosh. I wish we could play it on here. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, who Bob Newhart is right. No. Oh, you don't. He's an older comedian. Um, my dad used to watch the new heart show. So that's where I knew him from. I think this was like a mad TV sketch okay. where he plays a psychologist and mm-hmm. um, this woman comes in and she's got, like some sort of anxiety issue. And um, his response to all of her anxiety issues is to tell her, well, just stop it. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. I have seen that. Okay, you yeah. have shown me that before. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. his, that's I've basically been friends his... long enough with you or <laughs> yeah. friends with you long enough to I have this yeah. fear uh, of being buried yeah. alive in a box. Well, stop it. Yeah, you don't yeah, want to yeah, live yeah. that way your whole life. Do you? And she kind <laughs> yeah. of like, oh. yeah, yeah. I think that's that was like kind of my attraction to the military. It was like, yeah, I yeah. just needed somebody to just tell me what to do because I'm like yeah. so open that I'm like, I feel like I'm on the cereal aisle with like like a thousand choices. So that again, that's actually a place where you and I are very similar. Yeah. Um, even though like the internal dynamics are very different for you as a four, for me as a seven, and when you look at our like our big five profiles are also very different from each other, but that that openness that we share. Mm-hmm. Um, is definitely something that I function. I don't always want structure in my life and I'm usually not very good at creating structure for my life, but I actually have learned over the years that I work very well when somebody else is imposing external structure yeah, on me and here. then I can function within that. Yeah. It works really well for me. I love it and I have yeah. fun with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's why mm-hmm. maybe people who are naturally open end up feeling attracted to structured environments because yeah. it helps ground them. Otherwise they are like, I need some purpose or some way of like um, orienting myself in the world. 100%. Otherwise. I mean, won't. even just a real simple way. I've learned to do this myself, but it was not until probably in my 30s that I learned the value of just a really clean working environment 
And by mm-hmm. clean, I don't necessarily mean not dirty. I just mean uh, well ordered, yeah, not same cluttered. Here. Yeah. And I've learned to create that for myself because I don't have like somebody yeah. who's going to do it for yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but no, man. that's that's the same. My my bedroom is like very very messy, yeah. and my classroom is like pristine. Yeah. Like you could like have a spa treatment in there. Yeah. And, and it would be a good time. Like yeah. It's nice. No, I like uh, that. But that's like the. The two sides, (laughs) like where I work needs to be like totally. But I think so going back to the idealistic thing with with me as a person or and it's not I don't think it's just fours can be idealistic. But but they tend to be is uh, it's like almost this like you have this you feel the ideal. It's very like experiential and it hits you like and you feel it more than everybody else. And so that means when it succeeds you're like dancing around mm-hmm. and way more ecstatic and joyful and when it doesn't you're like fall into depression yeah and you're and so but even if your ideal does get realized then it's done and you have to find a new one and then it's like the cycle goes again yeah which is they were kind of talking about artists in this touch by fire book with their depression mm. it's like a cyclic thing so they tracked like when their art was produced and it was always like coming out of their depression Mm. and they would have this like torrential outpouring of like artistic output um, in their life. And all these famous art pieces that you see at the museums and everyone pays to see. Yeah. They were just depressed a few months ago. Mm. You know what I mean? And then they made this thing and it's kind of like this cycle of like, and I think it's just encountering their ideal and you know and struggling trying to realize it and then you know doing that and then getting depressed and feel like i don't know how to put all that into words perfectly but there's some type of just relationship with that with artistic people is having to struggle with the ideal and and feeling it and so i so i just think that a lot of the reason that idealistic people struggle with depression more is because they feel the ideal more yeah and so they constantly are never perfectly measuring up to it yeah. so how could they ever feel like validated or uh, like at peace or like the world was okay yeah. if that if the ideal was never happening so that's interesting I'm, I'm trying to think about my own relationship to the ideal uh, as a just as a concept and I have the capacity to be incredibly idealistic in certain settings, but also the capacity to almost ignore that completely in in ways too. My wife, she makes fun of me about it because again, I can be really nitpicky about details and really hyper-focused on getting things just right. But also a lot of times I I just don't care. And I, I don't know if that's something that comes from within my, in me, like in my temperament, or maybe it's, I, I like one of the ways I know I've learned that is through sports, you know, as mm-hmm. an athlete, you're, you, you never arrive. Yeah. And you're, there's a constant criticism of your skill, technique, effort, performance. That's constantly being criticized all day, every day. That's all you're ever doing is breaking down what you did and how you can improve it towards some sort of ideal 
but also you know that it'll never actually be achieved either. Like within the context of athletics, you, you don't, you don't ever actually achieve perfection. You know, yeah. it's not possible. Um, you, you can win, you can achieve victory, but not perfection. Yeah. So you're aiming at perfection knowing you'll never hit it. So I don't know. I guess I've always felt like that's more where some of that stuff comes from within me. Yeah. Is my did you, how athletics. did you react to it though? Like as somebody that was actually, uh, if, it, if it didn't come true, did, were you sad or did you oh, just kind of like, you're it depends. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had, I had some really big goals that I had set like, like multiple year long goals where I'd like devoted really everything that I knew how to devote at my age, I was completely and fully mm -hmm. devoted towards some of these goals for several years. Um, some of them, you know, I hit plenty of goals, but like the three or four major wrestling goals that I had, I actually didn't hit any of them. Um, that hurt quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't, I was not. So how did you respond to that? Like in the wake of that, you know, like I feel like I would kind of shut down and maybe no. roly poly, but I don't, I don't picture no. you doing something like that. No, I mean, so my senior year um, in high school, so I I might I had a goal of being California high school state champ, um, and uh, I placed as a sophomore. My junior year, I was in the semis against the guy who ended up winning it and had a, like a really good shot of of beating him. Didn't came back and took third, um, but I still had another year to go. And then my senior year was really. Well, yeah. Anyway, the point is, I had the same thing happen. Like I lost in the semifinals again to a guy I'd beat earlier in the year, and that was a crushing defeat because it basically meant my goal was unachievable. But I ended up coming back and winning two more matches and taking third. And you know that wasn't like I always did that well. Came back yeah. after a loss, um, even a big loss like that. Was there something that helped you the most, like doing that? Or is it just kind of like your? I do think instinct? that that's probably something that's maybe like the positive side of my temperament as a like yeah. a seven or within the big five. That's more of a function of like enthusiasm, which is part of mm -hmm. extroversion. Um, I mean, I, I'm just generally positive, and but but some of that too is just you know like having parents who encourage you to keep yeah, yeah, going yeah. and yep. being in a sport where yeah. you know like as a wrestler, that's a part of the mentality is no matter how hard it is, you just don't stop, you know? And yeah, that's part of the culture and what, right. and that's like, and that's what I was, and I was thinking about this earlier when I first mentioned being in depression in the Navy is what I realized coming out of it was that like, there was some type of relationship between the healing mm. of like, you know, um, the healing out of the coming out of depression and like being surrounded by community. Yeah. And being like, not just like, oh yeah, I, you know, have community around me. You could still feel alone, but it's almost like you're in the context of a community where you feel like you belong. Yeah. Like, I, I guess that's what I mean. And, and I, I was just thinking, you mentioned the wrestling culture and yep. your parents and right. really like that is what would constitute community in a sense mm -hmm. that would like push you through to get back up on your surfboard and keep catching waves. So yeah, for speak, sure. You know, after you wiped out, you know, yep. a bunch of times and kind of hit, got thrown to the bottom of the, you know, uh, seafloor or whatever. And, you know, are disoriented. Yeah. Like, okay, let's get back out there. Let's go do this. Yep. Like, and I think that that's, I think that learning that community is one thing, but then the second thing that, I feel like really helped me um, as an artistic 
creative person, uh, like struggling with depression was like learning to, um, like there's the ideal of how things should be and knowing that that's the ideal, but it's never going to happen exactly like I picture in my mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like maybe I picture a poem that I want to write or a book or a, uh, for some people who are painters, like they picture this painting they want to paint. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, of course they're neurotic about it and trying to get all the details right and make it as close as you can to get to like, cause I, you want so bad for that ideal to be true. <laughs> and in a sense it is true in the sense of like God put it there in you as like yeah. something that's like beautiful. Right. And it's true in the even deeper sense than the reality that realistic people talk about. And so <laughs> the realist. Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm like being derogatory towards them. When really they're like keep me <laughs> keep they help me be stable. So it's I think it's good. But I <laughs> so I just think that um that the ideal is good, but what helped me really was having more of a mindset of like, you know, in the in the process in the everyday like there's so much like micro ideal things in there that Mm -hmm. are like infinitely beautiful yeah you know like getting to sit and talk with someone you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. you could have this ideal of what your family should look like and it's like oh yeah my kids are gonna be like this and i'm gonna be this kind of husband and this kind of wife and you know i'm gonna be treat my you know, um, friends in a certain way and then you fail and then you're crushed and you're like, I'm a horrible friend, you know, and the ideal isn't working out, but really like, I think the micro ideals are just like little, little places throughout that, that even though it's not perfect, like you got that part of the painting in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And it was like something to cheer about. Yeah. Like I can't not cheer about the good things. Yeah. And then like I only focus on what's wrong with my painting, which is in this case is my life or my ideal of yeah. of what I'm trying to live for. No, yeah. I, I think as you were talking, I was realizing that there is an important, um, there's an important relationship between creativity and failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's artistically, which I don't have as much experience with, like I, I don't, I very rarely have I cr- tried to create beautiful things for other people to appreciate because of their beauty. That's not something I do a lot of, you know, poetry, songs, paintings. Um, but I have very much so tried to create things that would be um, more like useful to people or helpful to people. Um, you know, so like on that side of things, more like the entrepreneurial side, I think you've done both is, you know, you probably lean more in the, the, the beautiful side than the, mm-hmm. than the useful side, but yeah, you, yeah, you've yeah, done yeah. both for sure. I've watched yeah. you do both. Um, <clears throat> but to be the kind of person who's constantly trying to create beautiful things or trying to create useful things, you're going to create a lot of stuff that just doesn't work. Yeah. 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 A lot. Yeah. Like a whole lot. Yeah. 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 And so to be somebody who's persisting in creativity is to be somebody who actually ends up being comfortable with failing. And so that's what you're talking about. I think on the more emotional side around, um, uh, you know, kind of like the pain of not seeing the ideal expressed fully. 
Um, but also kind of I, like I was talking, you were asking me about wrestling and I was talking about my experiences in failure in wrestling, but I would, I would also point at, I mean, that's less of like an entrepreneurial endeavor. That's just sports. Mm. But you know, some of my experiences in leadership over the years, um, in ministry and in other places very much have been like that, you know, start something, it didn't work. Okay. Well then I got to try again as opposed to, well, I'm never doing that again. Cause that hurt. Um, yeah. it's more like, okay, well, like I can't not do something. I can't not start something. I can't not mm. create. I have to keep doing it. And so you just, it's you, but you end up having, I think a healthier relationship with failure. And it sounds like you're almost saying like a healthier relationship with your depression. Yeah. yeah <laughs> if yeah. I could say it like that, I don't know. Yeah. You'd, you have to respond and tell me if I'm putting words yeah. in your mouth, but no, I mean, there was this moment of when I, when I was in the Navy and, you know, I drive to the ship early in the morning and, I remember like I had to force myself to drive into work like so many mornings. Like mm. I'm like pushing down on the gas pedal, my car is zooming towards the base where the ship is. And I'm just wanting to like turn around and crawl in bed. And, but you don't have a choice. It's like, if I don't go, I'm going to be out of the Navy and I'm don't want that to happen. Yeah. And so, um, I remember though coming out of my depression and, um, you know, um, I got out of a relationship that I was in that wasn't that wasn't healthy, which was part of the cause of it, because um, I was wanting, trying to force this ideal to work out when it wasn't meant to. Felt like God's like, "Yo, let go." I'm like, "No, like I have to make this work out." And it's like, and you learn it. I think after that, from that point on, I was like mm. a lot more quick to listen when God like would tell me to let go of stuff. Um, but so, but uh, also like that part of the reason that was causing depression in my life is that it was becoming like an idol for me. Mm. And so that, and the dynamics of that, uh, we talked about community healing you was that once that thing became an idol, it effectively like isolated me for, out of community yeah. that I was in because all my thoughts, my energy, my emotions are wrapped up in this thing. So how do I have energy to be a part of any like type of context or community? You, you like it's impossible. Yeah. So once that was let go, it was like the lifeblood was able to flow in again yeah. from the community around me. I started healing. And well, this is what I was, this story I was driving to work and I remember seeing a sunset of the sunrise and that I like felt it for the first time in mm -hmm. a long time. Like, because while I was isolated and, you know, caught up in that, like, relationship and, um, like, I wasn't feeling anything and seeing beauty yeah. in the world. And then I saw it, like, for the and felt it for the first time. And it was just, like, washed over me. And I was like, whoa. Like, and I think that clicked to me. Like, I was like, oh, I need to pay to, like, what's going on here? Like, why? And it was just seeing a sunrise. Yeah. In the morning and how beautiful it is. Yeah. And it's like so much meaning there. And the fact that I'm able to appreciate it, it is somehow connected to me being a part of community. Yeah. And that when I'm separated from community, I'm less able to see beauty in the world. Yeah. Which is like a weird, <laughs> a weird thing to realize. Like you wouldn't think there would be a connection between like your ability to feel a sunrise and mm. being a part of like 
healthy community where you feel you give and receive love, you know, but, but that's what, I mean, that's what I experienced and I'm just sharing my experience. I'm like, I haven't done a scientific method on this to see (laughs) if that's how it is for everybody. But like, that's, I noticed that connection that being a part of community for me, like better enables me to like see beauty in the small moments. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a highly extroverted person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm like in the, I would say, yeah, I'm in the middle. Yeah. I grew up very shy, but then like, I guess developed social skills, (laughs) but I'm still naturally shy. Like if I go into a room where I have to meet a bunch of new people that I've never met before, I get, I I get drained really fast. I would define extroversion and shyness not as the same thing though, that, or that those aren't like, so for me, I can be shy even still now in some ways. Um, I definitely was shyer as a kid, but I always hungered for and needed to be in relationships with people. Mm-hmm. I just would be, you know, in new social settings would experience fear, anxiety around like new relationships or new social settings, um, which isn't necessarily the same thing. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I wanted something, I needed something, but I was afraid. Yeah. 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 It's a, I think it's a, it's weird because some people, the introvert, extrovert thing, it's like some people are certain ways as a child and then they grow up and, I mean, I've learned, I've learned to love meeting new people. Yeah, me too. But I think it's different than some extroverts experience it. That's fair. I'm like, oh, a new person, like it's somebody, there's something beautiful about it. They're unique. You get to know them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something mysterious (laughs) like at play, right? Because you're like, people are so complex and beautiful and ugly. (laughs) all mixed into one like we all have our own parts of us that are like and we try to hide those parts of meeting new people but you know uh you don't as much what hide your hide your ugly parts i don't hide my ugly parts oh i'm sure you do but you don't do it as much oh interesting yeah i mean well so this is connected to something else that i've I've thought about because people i'm friends with people i'm friends with i try to like part of being my friend is you get to hear yeah. Like the good, bad and the ugly, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, so one of the things that I was going to say, you were talking about um, your experience of beauty being connected to, or, or in some way a product of being a part of community. And I would say one of the ways it's definitely one of the ways that I think God has wired you. And one of the ways I've seen God use you in all sorts of settings is um, helping other people have meaningful experiences and mm-hmm. that could be super simple, you know, like we tease you sometimes when you're like, if you're, if you're going to be five minutes late to a meeting, you're going to stop and get like some gourmet brownies to bring to the meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, then yeah. you're 30 minutes late to the meeting, but you showed up with like great, which would you rather pastries. have? Would you <laughs> rather have me on time with no brownies <laughs> right. or late with brownies? I Regardless, think most people would choose <laughs> right. the latter. Right. right? <laughs> but so that's like a simple thing, you know, like this is, this is a simple way that Patrick won- and again, when, when you show up with brownies, you don't show up with, you know, brownies from tops. You show up yeah. with brownies from some, like maybe you even stop to make them yourself. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. you got something that's. I, I try to come something that people will like. 
yeah. really appreciate. Yeah. A, but a part of that's experience. like the hospitality. Like, well, right. But I, like I've seen you. Too. So that's one end of the spectrum, you know, showing up at brownies to a meeting or whatever um, that, you know, in one sense it's small, but it is an, it's, it's an extravagance that you will bring to people. But I've also seen you do that in incredibly profound ways too. You know, whether it's, you know, like for, I don't know, it was a couple of years, I think that you led communion in our church. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you brought that same kind of giftedness and attention and desire to that as well. You know, where it's um, really desiring to see people engage in what, you know, in, in the life of the church, that is perhaps the place that has the most tendency to fall into stale ritual. Mm-hmm but also is the place that should be the place of deepest meaning for the church and and can be the place of Mm. deepest meaning for the church. Um, precisely because it is, it's the, this central symbolic ritualistic act that we engage in that points at what is Christians we believe is the most important, most foundational, most life giving truth about the universe. Right. Mm. So it, it should be more like the experience of watching the atom split over and over and over again, instead of, this kind of like boring ritualistic yeah. and you are somebody who yeah. very much cared about making sure that people were experiencing that as this profound encounter with Christ instead of as this thing that we do every Sunday. So come on up and do it. And, yeah, yeah. and so, you know, there's like the brownies on one end and then there's the Eucharist on the other end. Oh yeah. And, yeah. But like, that is something that I've seen They're you both do the same thing. Well, they, they come out of the way that I think God has wired you as a person and the way that he's gifted you to mm. help people have meaningful experience. Mm. Um, and again, I know that's not new for, for you to hear me say that, or I, I don't yeah. think that's like a new revelation about your, your personality, but it's one of those things that I think is connected to your, your creativity or you, you being a four on the Enneagram or however you want to point at that. Yeah. It definitely comes out of who you are. Um, that is it's it's your experience of beauty and meaning and significance that's also tied to your your integration within a, com- a community of people yeah yeah i mean yeah it fit, i mean you have said that before it always feels good to hear compliments <laughs> you want i don't say think it's a bad thing also, okay wait say i'll it say, again. It again. say it again. <laughs> you complete me <laughs> um, no and i don't and i think like you know, like we give and receive love, like, and through words too. And it's like when Jesus is like, um, as I have loved you, like, so love one another. And man, like they were, they, somebody read that at my school in front of the whole school student body. It was after the, uh, at Nichols. That's the, after the school, it's not a Christian school, is it? No, 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 it's not. So after the school shooting, they had like this, the one this quasi like memorial service uh and it was just a chance different teachers and people within the school gave talks about just helping students process it and letting mm. them know people were there for them just so there were there aren't there i think you know there so there aren't students who are um, kind of like um not without the resources to process that and the school yeah. is really wonderful about giving that even like just in a plentiful way um so i appreciate that and um but one of the guys is was catholic who kind of runs uh he teaches a history and social justice class at the school and stuff and he runs volunteer trips to saint luke's on the east side and so the students go over there and like they love going there 
like my eighth graders go and they're all like, Oh, mm. we love going to volunteer there. My kids go there through their school. Oh really? Yeah. Through St. Joe's. Boys. Yeah. 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 So I think it's good for students to go, but he, in the context of his message, he's like, you know, I'm a Catholic, but I don't go to church regularly, but I was listening to mass the other day through Fordham university in New York city. And like, he was just listening online and he's like, this was the scripture reading from this past Sunday. And he read these are the words of Jesus, like, as I have loved you, like, so love one another. You know, yeah. and the encouragement was for students to respond to this by with love, which is something that MLK uh, Jr. kind of preached as a solution. And so, hmm. um, but when he read the scripture, like, in the meeting, like, I felt like this presence wash over me, yeah. like of love. Like, you know, I mean, as a yeah. Christian, you're like, Holy Spirit, <laughs> like, yeah. like that, like, there's something from God, like, going on and the words that he's speaking, you yeah. know, and um, it kind of harkens back to like Jesus saying stuff and people like feeling it or getting you know, um, washed over by it or he breathed on them or something, mm. you know, and like you just felt this breath spiritually wash over your soul. And I was like, it's like, whoa, like but that as I have loved you, so one another, um, and just that I think in the giving and receiving of love, like, there's something like very like supernatural that happens. Even as giving a compliment that's related to someone's like who God has made them. Yeah. You know, as like, it feels so good. Yeah. And you can receive the compliment knowing like, yeah, like that's because like somebody sees me and loves me for who I am. Mm -hmm. And that's humbling. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, I need to do, and it's a reminder too. It's like, I need to do that for other people too. When I notice things about them that are good, um, yeah. I need to like tell them that, um, that that's like that. So, um, so anyway, I noticed that with my, my students, I know you mentioned, um, perhaps we could talk about like mentoring and mm -hmm. information stuff is like at school in the classroom. This is something that I, when I was teaching and I was, you know, it's my first year teaching. So, and I have like, I teach, but it's not your first year teaching. Yeah. I mean, I've been in the Navy and in the Navy, everything's, getting trained and learning to train others. Yeah. And like then you've done plenty the, of coaching. Yeah. And I, yeah, I coached on teams, uh, sports teams for yeah. six years now. And so, um, but, um, but anyway, like, uh, in the context of teaching, um, like I just noticed that as I was doing my classes, I was sometimes I'd feel like, oh man, that was a bad class. I don't feel like I connected. The ideal did not get met, <laughs> like depressed, you know? And now I know like, okay, like same thing as you, like, let's see, let's distill what went wrong, isolate it, figure it out, do some, you know? And so, but I always like talk to God throughout the day too. And I'm like, I'm like, Lord, what, like, what do, what do these kids need the most from me? Like, what do I need to change? And and it was just like this thought like that popped into my head of like warmth, mm. like just be very like warm with yeah. them. And I think that I'm not, and I don't think that it's like every teacher should be like that necessarily because some teachers aren't as warm maybe personally. But I think like when God, when the Holy spirit speaks to you, it's to you. 
And so yes. it's like your personality. So if another teacher prayed the same prayer, like the Holy Spirit might give them a different answer in a different context. So it's like for yeah. me in that class, this trimester, like it was like be warm with the students. And I noticed that as I was like warm with the students and anytime I got frustrated, mm. like I would just go back to that. And that like, it would just like break through, cut through everything. Like, and I would be, find myself connecting with the students and afterwards they would be coming to visit me during their free periods to ask for help because they were, they felt love. It's like, as I've loved you, love one another, like, and it's like doing what you do with love and, um, and they're feeling valued. Right. And affirmed and welcomed and hospitality from you just on the level of like, I care about you. I want to spend time with you. I hope I get to spend more time with you. Like they wouldn't put that in the words, but that's like, but they can feel it. They're feeling, you know, I think that that matters in all coaching, mentoring kinds of settings. Um, and you, you know, you're right. Some people are warmer than others. Some people can't. I think it's some people they're like good coaches, but it's like, yeah, but I think that even those people who most coaches like that yes. are good have times when there's this this warmth that they show or the at least the the kids know that they care. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say is that so in a in a in a coaching context in a, in an athletic setting one of the unique things about that is that inherent in the coaching relationship is that the success of the coach relies 100% on the success of the athlete. So a a coach cannot be successful as a coach if his athlete fails or her athlete fails for that matter. Although neither one of us is a her. Um, And so that that's just at a structural level that actually it tilts things in the direction of um, athletes trusting their coaches because it's just built into the coaching relationship Mm -hmm. that you know, an athlete knows that the only way you succeed is if they succeed. And so even if you don't actually care about them, you kind of have to, if you, if you're only self-interested as a coach, you still have to invest in them. But then I think most coaches genuinely care and do that. And when you express that, even in the smallest ways, it, it, it just builds trust. You know, when you communicate to somebody, I care about your success, Mm -hmm. then people trust you. In, yeah. in sometimes in profoundly intimate ways. Um, but I think that that's what, that's what I, I think is going on in that, you know, when you're expressing to kids, Hey, like I, I value your presence in my classroom. I care about you. I'm glad to see you. Uh, I care about your success as one of my students, but even more, I just care about your success as a human mm-hmm. being. And you, you know, even without articulating any of that, just expressing that to them in a way that they can kind of pick up on, it makes a huge difference. And I've seen that in, again, in, in a, for me, it's mostly in a wrestling context, but baseball and other sports that I've gotten a coach where, you know, being able to in, and it doesn't take much because again, it's built into the relationship, but being able to affirm, or I think this is where I see it the most is when I'm offering praise or criticism to an athlete Mm. and being able to see how it affects them emotionally in the moment 
And then sometimes you like you, you might have to make an adjustment in that. So yeah. definitely I've seen places where I've offered some criticism to um, to an athlete and realized, oh man, they they got, they kind of got a little crushed by that. Yeah. And you can see it in their their body changes or whatever, you know, their posture they yeah. they droop or something. And and then just being able to to like come back to that and affirm them. Hey, whoa, whoa no, it's okay. Like it's yeah. fine that you didn't do it right. like I appreciate your effort you're here like I'm for you we're going to solve this problem not a problem at all that you did it wrong having said that you know you put your head here and it was supposed to go here so let's try it again great now you did Mm -hmm. it right awesome good job you know and to like be able to do that yeah and that's a real small expression of warmth or affirmation but you're communicating tough warmth too right because exactly and I've noticed that too with the students is like I think, you know, the Holy Spirit's like, be warm. (laughs) And then you're like, you're like being super fluffy and like, you're my favorite student. (laughs) Here's a gold star on your paper, even though your writing sucks. (laughs) And it's like, no, No. like I, I'm warm with my students, but I'll be like, Hey, like, dude, this paper like sucks. Yeah. Like you can you, do way more. Yeah. Way yeah. More or this. like you didn't put a lot of work into this, did you? <laughs> like there's honesty. Yes. But then it's like, but hey, look, I'm not, I'm not like here. Like I'm telling you because I'm, I'm invested I'm in liter- you. I literally will come in here an hour early to work with you. Yeah. You know, and, and show up and do that with you. And they're like, whoa. And it's like, then like they start experiencing like, oh man, like this person is challenging me. And but from a place of love, yeah, mm-hmm. my ideal as a person is being called <laughs> forth, 100%. And, and, it, and it is, and that's true. And then it's like a real beautiful ideal, like God, like made them with this, like, soul, yeah, that has like a seed waiting to be like watered and challenged and brought forth, and it's gonna take a lot to like get it. To where it needs to go what do you what what, like if you were to look back at your coaches like what do you think like maybe the top three qualities you would like appreciate it or would idealize or be like look back and be like oh yeah those were like the three things that hit me that are so maybe if you set aside like technical proficiency or some of those things you know if you're talking more just about their capacity to be a coach but that might be good to like, not, well, that's kind of a given to not discipline someone in an area that you don't know anything about. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, for sure. That's not an unimportant thing. To no, mention. no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean that, well, that's what I'm saying. Cause it, yeah, yeah. in some ways, you know, particularly in something that's really technical. So wrestling is incredibly technical for people who don't know that. Um, you, you just, you can't be successful without good technique. I don't care what kind of an athlete or how strong you are. It, it really does require a tremendous amount yeah. of technical expertise and so in that sense, that is really the most important thing that you're offering as a wrestling coach is technical expertise. Um, and then a close second would be things like, you know, just structuring uh, a team and a program around, you know, like good work ethic and good habits and stuff too. So those are things that really matter a ton in the sport of wrestling. So I mean, so I, mean, I could point at those two things, but if you set like those kinds of things aside and then more focus on like what makes a good coach, a good coach, assuming that they are also good wrestlers. Right. So those are things that are more just indicative of good wrestlers. Um, but somebody could be a good wrestler and a bad coach yeah. or somebody could be a good wrestler and a good coach. And I think 
I think this is probably the single most important thing that differentiates good coaches from bad ones or good teachers from bad ones is the capacity to understand what is going on in the athlete or the student in front of them and to kind of like to get into their shoes and help Mm -hmm. them from where they're at. Does that make sense? Like I I probably could find a better way to say that, but you know, the, the number of times I've watched coaches or teachers try to teach something or coach something or get, you know, explain something. And it's clear that they don't even know where their, their students or their athletes are at. So yep. you're, you're not, you're, you're teaching over their head or you're teaching, you're, you're, you're showing them technique that they, they're not ready to yep. learn, or you're addressing a problem that isn't the actual problem that they're wrestling yep. with or, and then, I mean, I see that happen. I don't yeah. know if it's 95 times out of a hundred, 99 times out of a hundred. And then you come across teachers and coaches and who they just get it. They're like, this is, you know, this kid is striking out because he's afraid of the ball versus this kid is striking out because his mechanics are bad. And I have to actually see the kids understand where they're at and then help them from there. As opposed to, I'm just going to treat everybody like they all have bad mechanics when this kid's mechanics aren't the problem. And that, like I would say that is the single most important thing, you know, pastors, leader, organizational leaders, you know, any, any place where I've seen somebody who is responsible for, you know, kind of like the formation process of somebody else. It's uh, that's the, the single largest issue. I think I noticed when I was like first teaching that I was, I came in in the middle of the, the school year. So I was turning over with the teacher was already there knew the students and so Mm. I got to like sit in and co-teach with her for the first couple weeks and so it's like oh that student's like sleeping in class like all the time what's wrong with him is he up late playing video games like that was my first like instinct you know and it's like you know she's like oh no like his parents own this restaurant and they make him work in the evenings at the restaurant and so he's not able to like get as much sleep because he still has to do his homework and then I'm like, oh man, I feel like a, I feel like a jerk. Why well, does you know you jump to a conclusion that you right. shouldn't have jumped to, and and then you learn like that every kid has a, is different, yeah. And there's a story behind how people got, and I mean, and and sometimes they are up late playing video games, <laughs> but but you're like you you learn not to be you learn to ask first, yeah. Like what's going on and to listen and um, and that's love too, you know. Is like let me wait to get to know you and your story and listen before mm-hmm. like assuming things, you know? Um, and so, and that's like a great privilege to like be able to, to learn someone's story. And do. and so, so after that I was like, Oh, that kid, like, you know, he, I feel bad. Like I empathize with him now. I feel right. bad. And so you, it's that individual individualization that you're mentioning yep. that, that coaches do. That's like, Oh yeah, I, I'm gonna learn what makes you tick. I'm gonna learn mm-hmm. what you're afraid of, what you right. like to do, your favorite ice cream flavor. Right. I mean, silly fun stuff too. Yeah, like when someone knows even fun stuff about me that doesn't even really matter, so to speak, I feel known and loved. One hundred percent. You know, and then they. Oh yeah, I was listening to this TED talk uh, by this teacher, and he was sharing. He's like, teachers don't like to give this survey that I gave 
and it's basically like asking the students what their favorite thing about what makes a good teacher. Mm. And he's like, you'd think more teachers would give this kind of survey, but they don't. And he's, and, and so he's like sharing the things, the responses the kids gave and they're all weird things. And he's like, yeah, uh, good teachers eat apples. And it's like, he's like, what? And he's like, you know, I, I kept getting this response on my survey and he's like, it's funny, the story unfolded where I started eating apples every day uh, in class and people would see me in the hallway eating apples and I was just always had apple every day I was would eat apples. And he's like, after a while, the kids started like bringing me apples because mm. they knew I loved apples. And then like they were like giving me a gift that I was receiving from them. And they felt like we had a relationship and, and there was an exchange going on and it became like something more than just something silly, you know? And I, and I, and it goes back to that, you know, giving and receiving love and, and doing both as part of like growth and formation and relationship and individualization. And the other funny one that is funny because I actually like tried it today my students was it was like good teachers sing (laughs) and so he's like why do i keep getting and he's like and one of the like one of the kids who you would like think was just like joke around like wrote this answer in the survey and um and he's like and it was just interesting because those kids would even be serious for the survey and give like serious answers um and so he's like one day i just decided to try it and he's like, I had my to-do list on the board and I decided to like sing it for the class. And he's like, first we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and this. Blah, blah, blah. And he's reading it. And he did this operatic like singing thing for the class. And he's like, you know, you're afraid that people are going to like, like throw tomatoes at <laughs> cue the rotten <laughs> slimy tomato right in your face or the kids being whispering in the hallways did you hear about how stupid mr cruz sounded when he was in class or something but he's like they stood to their feet in applause yeah. and i and he's like and i was thinking about that and it's like wow what like in all, in both of those stories he shared there's this exchange of like gift like in a, in a sense the song was a gift to the students because it was something beautiful that he created and gave to for them to listen to um that was beautiful and different and required vulnerability right mm-hmm. um and there's like some sort of exchange going on there you know yeah um and that caused them to a student full of like snobby you know teenagers who are not all about vulnerability you think right like stood to their feet in applause yeah like and um showed their capacity for that and um and so i tried it was our last day of classes today <laughs> and so so you're singing the to-do so, list no 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 i didn't sing the to-do list we uh and i thought i didn't i wasn't sure whether to do this but i i was like you know what i i i think the students it's my last class with them whatever (laughs) like we'll try it so uh at the end we had um most most everybody knows the new year's song like old lang syne you know Mm. old lang syne yep uh and uh which is by a scottish poet who we had studied earlier in the year okay and so they had already encountered this poem and the song before 
Um, and I told them that the song is about, it's sung at times when they're remembering like good times that were had together, yeah. commemorating them. And now it's the new year song, but it came from Scotland and it spread as a song of like remembering, um, times that had, uh, gone, gone by, you know, I think when Britain left the EU, like the rest of the European countries representatives stood up and sang it to England because it's like the song of like remembrance and commemoration and stuff. And it's beautiful. It's like one of the most sung songs in the whole world. Um, and so I was like, you know, my last, I, there's like two minutes left on the clock that every student watches during every class. Right. You're like, when's class going to end? I'm like, all right, my last two minutes, I'm just going to sing the song for you. The song, as you know, is about good times that were had together. And I just want you guys to know that I love you. Every single one of you guys, you're always welcome in my classroom, even next year. Like, I hope you'll come back and visit me and, so I was like, I want to sing this song for you. And I just just started singing, should all acquaintance be? And it was like a mix of like some kids were like really awkward, like, all right, good job. <laughs> and but like later in the hallway, there was one class that I hadn't sang it to. And they're like, we heard you sang for the other classes, but you didn't <laughs> sing for us. And so <laughs> so I just started singing for them in the hallway. Yeah. And then like I got done and they were like clapping and stuff. And it was um, and I was, as I was leaving school, another girl from that class was like, Hey, you didn't sing it for, for me. And she was with her friend. And so I sang it for them and her and her friend are dancing around while I'm <laughs> singing. And it was just like, no, you know, like cool. there's, there's something like beautiful about a gift given like yeah. that and singing. And, um, you know, and I think that it, it requires like you could hear that story and think like, Oh man, I'm not going to start singing for somebody. But like, if you did, like you're afraid that they're going to like throw a tomato at you, but really they're going to stand up and, and cheer. Well, and not everybody can sing. So (laughs) it's, but I think that everybody can sing Steve. Uh, no, there are some can in the, the, the (laughs) sense of, (laughs) they can, can I go to the bathroom? Can you, (laughs) (laughs) but, but but what I was going to say, I would assume you would agree with is that it's not, it's not specifically about singing songs for people. It is about communicating to people that they matter to you and making connections with them in ways that are, um, express like genuine expressions that really do come out of the, you kept using the word vulnerable. Like there's something vulnerable about saying to somebody, yeah. you matter to me yeah, and I'm that. going to communicate you matter to me in not just in words, but in a way that really truly communicates the depth to which I care about you. Yeah. Um, and you know, as, as simple as a two minute song is, it clearly did that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I do think that that's a really important part of, I mean, that's probably more than even just what good teachers or good coaches do. That's just, I think what good, I almost want to say good friends, but it like whatever kind of relationship you're in with somebody, it is. It's like vulnerable acts of love. Right. Exactly. Whether it's a song or. Yeah. But if it's not vulnerable, it's there's almost like something that's not yeah. like powerful about it. Or, yes. You know. Yeah. So you're gonna sing for me now, or <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't. I don't know that song. 
I could sing happy birthday to yeah. you. But uh, trying to think, what it's other, not my birthday. I know, right? What other songs do I know that are designed to be sung to people you like that? You are so beautiful. Right? <laughs> I mean, I know worship Romantics. songs. Romantics. Yeah, I don't know songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we I don't, don't have a lot of songs like I know, that in our culture. I know, and I think part, part of it is maybe our... I could sing yeah. happy birthday, Mr. President. Do you want that one? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. No, I'm not doing but that. But that's something, that is something I noticed about British culture uh-huh. um, was um, being in a, I was in a university town one time over in England and it's like the rugby team came in, which right. you think like these are the rough and tough guys who are like not going to do something mushy gushy, you know, and they come into, they bust into the pub and they're singing their team song and they're just filling the pub with like this, like raucous music. That's good. It stirs you listening to it. It makes you smile. Your whole countenance changes being in the room with them singing. And you're like, and that's like part of their culture is that like, this is what we do as a team as a a group of people who are like brothers that are together, you know? And so it's like, you kind of like, I think part of me was like envious. I was like, Oh man, I like want to be a part of that. Well, we don't have, I think this is a theory on my, my part, but we don't really have a role for music in American culture like that. Mm. But I do think that, that in many cultures, more traditional cultures, you know, American culture is unique in that it's, well, we, we call it a melting pot or a stew or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it, because really this is a place where so many different cultures have so many different peoples have been uprooted from their traditional cultures and, you know, kind of dumped together in our country over the last several hundred years. And so we don't have that. And I, it's my understanding that many other cultures do have more roles for music that fill into those kinds of spots in the culture, like formative, important aspects of, you know, bonding people together or expressions of whether it's cultural solidarity or identity or, you know, celebration or memorial of this or Mm. that kind of moment. And we really don't have, we don't have music as those kinds of cultural touchstones in American culture. Mm -hmm. You know, we have pop music. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know. So we've got like the, the national anthem, take me out to the ball game. Happy birthday. Like what are some, I am. No, no. I think that I I was thinking about this when I was thinking about the whole team singing over in Europe, that seems to be more prevalent is I was like, this isn't common across the U S but I think like as Buffalonians, we should be proud that mm. like when you're walking down the street and you know, walking to a Bills game, like yeah. you hear like, hey, hey, yep. hey, and all of a sudden your spirit like tangibly yeah. lifts because you're a part of right this like song together. No, 100%. And it's like, but not every football team has that to the same extent that we do. Yeah. But it's the same thing that I was like talking about the rugby team, like this, this like, and that's embedded in our culture in Buffalo, which I think is a healthy, right? Like, like a healthy kind of like, I agree thing and marker and like our culture in Buffalo and, and Buffalo Mm -hmm. is known as a familial, like, um, like loving neighborly city, you know, even though like there's obviously a lot of ways that it isn't like we're still human beings yeah yeah no and and um 
and the, and that's not that those aren't small things, but I think like um, there is something like beautiful there with the having a song that yeah. you know everybody everybody rallies around. Um, yeah, so I th- but yeah, I think that you talking about as a coach wanting like somebody who challenges you too is like is really important. I had a I had a so that this isn't like singing and giving apples and stuff like the I had this student who you know I'm like I get I tell the students like hey if you don't read you're not allowed in my class like if you don't do the reading you know because I overheard some people like oh yeah I didn't do the reading and I'm like and then they were like also distracting people and I'm like uh no 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 like <laughs> that's not <laughs> and so I'm like I set up this desk out in the hallway which is the desk where like people sit who didn't do the reading it's the dunce desk and it's been it's been empty like ever since the first few days of setting it up, it's been empty. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you're not supposed to do any educational things from like 50 years ago, (laughs) but I was, and I didn't do that thinking of that, but later (laughs) I thought of like, Oh yeah, that's kind of like the pointy hatted chair. Like, uh, and so desk of shame. Yeah. But the kid would go, I'm like, once you do the reading, come back into class. And like every class day after that, they show up the next day. Oh God. Mr. Cruz, I did my reading. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, good. You don't need to let me know about it, but you know, uh, you know, I was like, good, like, good. Thank you. And, uh, and so what I, this one girl, like she, uh, you know, so I give fair grades to them. It's like, I'm a, um, and so she was getting like a 70 or something and her, her grade had been dropping gradually. Um, and she's mostly into sports like, uh, but so her dad heard about it and wanted to, I got an email from him. I want to talk to me on the phone. I'm like, okay. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not crazy about talking with parents. I don't think <laughs> most teachers and coaches are, um, you know, they, they want to, they want to invest in the kids and stuff. And, um, so I, I was talking to her dad and was like, yes, you know, she's a great student, is a great presence in the class. She's never distracting, you know, but I think that she maybe just hasn't enjoyed some of the books we've been reading and, you know, her performance has fallen off. And, and he, so she comes back, I have this conversation with him. I was like, okay, I thought I kind of like saved her from anything, you know, and she comes in the next day and she's like, Mr. Cruz, I'm grounded. <laughs> my phone got taken away <laughs> except for an hour a day and my computer got taken away. Oh no. And, um, and so I was like, I was like, Oh no. And she's like, but she has like this smile on her face too. And she's like, but it's okay. Like, uh, like, you know, I still, I'm still allowed to have friends over like and stuff. And, and so, But she started like she had to work hard, do extra credit, and she brought her grade up to like a B fairly fast. And, you know, and, um, you know, when I and then she told her dad that she had had her grade up to a B, but she's still been grounded since then, (laughs) which I think is like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the reasoning behind it. But uh, but anyway, I got this I got this thank you note from her like um towards the end of the year that was like thank you for being so tough on me like thank you for making me a more tenacious worker yep um 
like, P.S., I'm still grounded, but I'm used to it now. <laughs> and, it, and it was funny, right? It was funny. Yeah. It's, like, funny. It made me smile. But I'm like, dude, I am saving this thank you note because I, like, I, and because I think, and I know that, I'm, and I'm not, it's not, like, some huge thing, but it is, but it's, it's something that I, I know that I long for that. And mm-hmm. so I think I instinctively want to give that to somebody else. So it's, it's like, I think that is the way that is the, the way that love really manifests itself in our relationships with each other. And ultimately I think it's the way that God loves us, which is he wants, he, he, he cares about us so much that he wants what's best for us, including he wants us to be the best we can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And that is both, well, yeah, C.S. Lewis talks about that. I'm trying to remember what, what, which, which book it's in, but just that, you know, he talks about how oftentimes when we talk about God being love, we like to imagine God loving us the way a grandfather loves grandchildren, which is basically, yeah, sure. Eat all the sugar you want you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. and like that That's is true when i went to my grandparents house they had cases of coca-cola like yeah. sugar and here, orange soda here rot the teeth and out we, of your head and Go we ahead. could have as many as we wanted yeah. like we were like on a sugar like <laughs> craze whenever we were over there but he says that he goes on to say that that's that's not actually how god loves us but god loves us much more the way you could talk about you know an artist loving their artwork, which is in this Mm. incredibly exacting way. You know, I love this piece that I'm working on so much that I'm not going to stop until I get it looking exactly like what I want it to look like. It's this expression of the ideal that, that you've, you've talked about. And it's really is an expression of the artist's love for what he's creating or she's Mm -hmm. creating that ends up (laughs) persisting in messing with the art piece until it manifests exactly. And that that's more the way God loves us. And that that can be, that can be painful. Yeah. But also when you experience that, when you experience God loving you that way, or even, you know, your father or your mother or a coach or a teacher or a friend loving you that way. Um, when, when, when you understand it, it actually is really comforting Mm-hmm. And the opposite can actually be while it's comfortable to have somebody love you like a grandfather, it it doesn't actually feel as meaningful to yeah. have somebody say, yeah, I love you. So I'll never expect anything of you ever. And I actually don't think you're capable of much either. That's how my love for you manifests itself. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, that doesn't even feel like love at all. Yeah. Whereas somebody saying, I care about you so much that I know that you're capable of, you know, getting better grades in my class and putting up with being grounded in the process. Cause I know that you're capable of that and I believe in you and I'm here for you and I'll help you and support you and we'll laugh together mm-hmm. about it. And, yeah. and that even though, you know, for this girl in your class, I'm sure she didn't enjoy all sorts of aspects of that. She responded to that by recognizing it as love coming from you. And it sounds like from her father too. Yeah. So, yeah, which is super cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and she's growing, she's growing up under the appropriate expectations that you and her parents have put on her to become a capable, a more powerful woman. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's like a deep longing we have to be challenged and, um, God 
does that to us yeah as well and i think uh that and i remember a story i i um i was in like a confusing place you know where you're trying to decide what to do next with your life and just like feeling kind of disheartened and uh downtrodden <laughs> all those words and um confused and like man i just don't know how to approach this and i'm so open to possibilities that i there's like a hundred different things i can do and i get paralyzed by that yeah and so i called this uh friend of my mom's um who's a family friend of ours and um and she um she has been a career counselor before, so I was um, thought she'd be perfect to talk to. And I felt stirred as I was praying to give her a call anyway. And so I called her, and, um, you know, she's, like, in a whole different time zone. and uh, But she picked up, and I tried to call at a time when she'd be awake. And um, she's like, oh, I'm so glad that you called. It's so good to hear from you. And, like, just, like, warmth, like, washing over me as I'm hearing her talk. And... Um, I'm just telling her like, you know, I'm at this place where I'm like thinking about what to do next. And I just feel like there's so many options. Like what? And I feel bad. I was like, I feel sheepish Mm. saying this, but like, I don't know what to do. Like I don't, and I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know how somebody decides what to do next. Like, and I feel like I'm supposed to know, but like, Hey, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> like like you know and it and like she's like you know she's like patrick like you don't know how many people struggle with that like it's just like you're not alone like and she's like i'm gonna t- like i'm gonna tell you like exactly what you should do <laughs> and so i was like yeah and 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 i was in a place of like willing to like do what this woman said and part of that was I felt like God led me to call her and I'm in this place of like trying to prayerfully move forward and stuff. And, and she's like, you know, you need to like, you need to pick like five different, like if you're, let's, I was thinking about going back to school at the time too, so that I could be an English teacher. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, you know, you need to apply to five different schools, just pick five and apply to one of them and go to one of them that you get into and she's like you know you could say what if i go to the wrong school okay at least you went you did something and went somewhere and if it turns out to be a hellaciously just like you know bad decision then like you can redirect yep but you in moving there you'll be closer to the like where you it's easier to steer a bike while you're pedaling it yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but she's like, but you have to be very disciplined with yourself about this and make yourself apply and go to one of the places. So, um, so it's funny. I started looking at schools and working applications. And then I was at a field hockey game at this high school that my friend coaches for. And one of the retired teachers came up and was like, oh, they have an English teacher job opening at the school and we want you to apply. And I was like, okay, this is what I was looking at going back to school for. And it happened. And, and so, you know, I didn't even end up really walking through it advice and I may end up doing that, you know, because I do plan on going back to school. But like the point was just like more in telling that story was like, it felt so good to talk to somebody 
and have them like mentor me and for me to be actually open to doing what they say, even though I would make mistakes Yep, and make the wrong decision, you know? And, you know, and there's some, and, and she was even like, it may, who's to say what the wrong decision is. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, but anyway, I, I really appreciated having somebody like, you know, that, that giving and receiving of love and yeah. being willing to have that exchange. So that's cool. Yep. I like that story. I've heard pieces of it before, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is, uh, we've been, we've been talking for a while now. Okay. Yeah. We're, are we over time? Yeah. By a lot? yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, but no. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all good. Yeah. Anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I just really appreciate like, yeah, it's fun. You and being able to talk and also just like encourage people to like give a gift or sing for somebody <laughs> or, or like challenge <laughs> or be honest. I think on like, but just that giving and exchanging of love and, and, uh, and, and doing it prayerfully too. And just, uh, yeah. you know, it's an adventure. It is like that when, when you do that, which is fun. So less depressed now <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for hanging out with me, man. Yep. All right. Thanks, Steve. All right. 242 is a podcast from Buffalo Vineyard Church in Buffalo, New York. Our mission is to teach people the way of King Jesus by regularly encountering God, training each other in the faith and effectively serving our neighbors. This podcast is just one of the many ways we work to realize this. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or get in touch, visit us at buffalovineyard.org. Our theme music is Face to Face from Vineyard Worship. Thank you for listening.